Welcome to our discussion on industrial symbiosis as part of the virtual festival Nature X Design. Featuring renowned thought leaders in the space, including Dr. Marion Chertow from Yale School of the Environment, Professor Wesleyan Ashton of Illinois Institute of Technology, and Tracy Kosevent, the Managing Director of the National Industrial Symbiosis Program for Canada and Circular Economy for Lighthouse Sustainable Building Center. Today's talk will explain what industrial symbiosis is from the experts who champion it. Presented by Tea Leaves, tea blender of choice for five-star hotels and Michelin chefs worldwide. And now you. Our approach to blending is not limited to teas and botanicals. With deep-rooted values in craftsmanship, innovation, and art and beauty, we blend techniques, stories, people, companies, and ideas. Thank you for joining us. For more education, enlightenment, and enchantment, head to tealeaves.com. Marian, would you kindly start us off by explaining what is industrial symbiosis as a subset of industrial ecology? Well, I'm glad you asked. I'd like to answer that question. Now, I want to make it clear to our audience that these three women that you see before you are pretty addicted to industrial symbiosis. Industrial symbiosis comes from a young-ish field um, called industrial ecology. Now, when people hear the word industrial, sometimes they immediately start thinking about heavy industry and steel and timber and so forth. But what it means to us is a field is very concerned with the flows of material and energy, everything that goes around and creates our physical society. And we ask, how can we close the loops? How can we close the material loops uh, that, that physical materials uh, create and Think about all the energy and the material it took to make any one of those things, right? Or any one of those systems. So um, think about the very physical aspects of what's, how do you make a toaster? What's embedded in that toaster? How much energy, how much materials, what can we do with it? How can we recover it? And how can we make sure that it's reused and not discarded? So uh, many industrial ecologists think of our field as science behind the circular economy. Circular economy is a wonderful concept that's gained a lot of traction around the world. And we're the ones who go around and, and get, collect the data, do the calculations and assessments. We're in a quest to figure out how can we use something again, the old clothes, the coffee grounds, the asphalt, industrial symbiosis is both the subfield of the academic field of industrial ecology and also a practical approach to cooperatively managing resources of the circular economy. Wonderful. Thank you so much for giving us that really strong foundation to build our discussion off of. With that as a starting point, um, Wesleyan and, and Tracy, would you be able to share some case studies of effective industrial symbiosis, which perhaps led to some significant insights or have really furthered this field along? Uh, perhaps we can start with Wesleyan. I think one thing Marion did not mention is that, that she wrote an article in the year 2000 uh, called Industrial Symbiosis, Literature and Taxonomy. 
uh, that really, you know, serves as the, the academic intellectual foundation for this field. And that's actually how I found her um, and started my PhD dissertation work um, with Marianne. And one of the, the key ideas in, in our work was thinking about, you know, in Kalenborg, um, in Denmark, um, in, in Europe, uh, some clusters exhibiting industrial symbiosis, some living, breathing industrial ecosystems were uncovered. And so for the first few years in our work, you know, we, we hypothesized that there would be similar clusters all over the world if you knew how to look for them. And so we began work in Puerto Rico um, and a project called the Puerto Rico Island of Sustainability. And I see a participant from Puerto Rico where we sort of systematically you know, looked at the material flows in industrial parks across the island to identify whether synergies existed in these clusters. And I, I see a, a colleague, BG Kurup from Australia, who had a similar um, uh, set of, of, of methods um, with Rene Van Berkel at Curtin University of Technology, who systematically looked at tracking those material flows in order to, uh, to identify the, these industrial ecosystems. And so uh, with time, we've seen other forms um, emerging. So we have uh, some, what we call self-organized industrial ecosystems, right? So some of the clusters that we saw in Puerto Rico, in Curtin, in Kallenberg, and in Denmark are self-organized. So the companies are the ones who decided, hey, I have this waste material. Um, I wonder if that guy across the street who I don't really talk to, he's not in my supply chain, um, but somehow I think maybe, you know, he might have a uh, a use for, for this material. And so in, in many cases, we have these relationships really beginning very organically. I think, you know, like one, one of the stories that um, Marion liked to tell about our fieldwork in, in Puerto Rico is ab about the, the hot dog guy. Right. Um, so, so we talk about, you know, like if you, you want to figure out well, what's going on in an industrial park, uh, you go find the street cart, the, the vendor, because everybody that's where everybody in the industrial park might meet to, to have lunch. And so it's kind of like a, a core meeting place for people from different industries. And so uh, one of the learnings that, that we had in this work is that if that type uh, of place uh, does not exist for uh, companies, managers, uh, employees from different firms to get together and sort of randomly meet people from other industries, then it's hard for the symbiosis to, to develop, right? If you're only talking to the folks in your own company, in your own value chain, then it's hard to see opportunities with companies that are outside of it. So I'll stop there and, and turn it over to, to Tracy um, and just say, you know, there, there are different paths that, that, that uh, clusters take towards industrial symbiosis. Yeah, and it's, it's evolved over time and continues to evolve. And I don't, I don't know that there's a best way to achieve it. Um, so a different, different path. Um, so 2000 is when I finished uh, my graduate work, just a master's. Um, but as part of that, coming from an engineering background, I was looking at the technical approach 
if we could just understand all the flows and use, I was using uh, simulation software that's used to design pulp mills, then we could somehow construct these industrial symbiosis relationships and present them to the businesses and they would act on it. And um, so moving beyond the self-organized system, but looking at like, how can we actually be more strategic and use data? And, you know, that's very much, there were several projects in the early 2000s, late, late 1990s around that, you know, essentially send in the, send in the students with clipboards, um, get in the, Wesleyan's laughing, right? So get the data and, and somehow sift through and, and that will work out. Um, and what we've seen is that that does, so the self-organized works, you can do studies and find opportunities and sometimes those get implemented. Um, but what we've seen um, in a lot of the, like the on the ground work is that ultimately we're dealing with people um, and we can be our own uh, worst enemies. And so the other way that we've seen this work is through something called facilitation, which was hard for me as an engineer to wrap my head around because I wanted the data first. And facilitation is more, you know, let's get the businesses together. Let's figure out what the opportunities are. Um, let's mix them up, like across supply chains, um, work with, with what we have in the region, find those opportunities, and then give them help to implement that because they are really, really busy. And um, from my perspective, all of the methods work, but we've seen the most success from the, well, if you define success by, you know, the metrics is uh, uh, like dollars saved and over time and waste averted. Um, there's obviously other benefits, um, you know, social capacity building and things like that. But if we look at some of the hard numbers, the facilitation approach actually tends to get us the most industrial symbiosis, the fastest. Um, and we saw that with the NIST pilot, the National Industrial Symbiosis pilot uh, in Canada as well. Um, so I just was going to flag the numbers there. So yeah, in terms of, you know, like a case study that worked, you know, we tried this facilitation model and in about 20 months, we were able to engage almost 400 businesses across all different sectors and sizes. Um, the economic benefits was about $6.3 million. So cost savings plus uh, new revenue streams. Um, and we avoided 24,000 tons of greenhouse gas emissions. So, um, you know, I think there are, there's so many different examples of success and some of it's been under our nose the whole time and others we've been working over the years to figure out how to better make it happen. Thank you so much for that example. And also Wesleyan as well. I think it's um, really interesting when we see that there are a lot of those opportunities there, but to both of your points, uh, it's about finding that opportunity to have that discussion, to make those connections, whether it's through that meeting place or through the facilitator. Um, so hopefully through this conversation, we can be in a way that meeting place and allow people to start thinking in this method and um, who knows, maybe they'll make some unique connections today. Are you finding that there's any resistance um, either with certain businesses or in certain industries um, in regards to there being barriers to approaching this method? Perhaps I'll uh, send this question first to Wesleyan. Sure. Um, I think one of the, the main barriers is information, right? Uh, knowing that your 
byproducts, your waste materials could potentially have some value and be used by another industry, right? So, so I think one, there, there's a mindset, right? Uh, because often uh, companies think about waste as, you know, what do I need to do to get rid of this in uh, the least cost, environmentally compliant way? Um, and, and often they, they having a mindset switch to say, you know, is this material potentially useful somewhere else is one of the switches that, that we see. So it's kind of like a, a culture change that, that needs to happen in, in the minds of managers. Um, but accessing information, um, yeah, understanding the qualities, the characteristics of these byproduct streams that could potentially be used elsewhere. And then understanding the economics of it, right? So what does it cost me to get rid of this material and what might someone else be willing to pay for it, right? What raw material is this waste stream, my waste stream going to substitute for them. And so then we can have a negotiation on price in, in, in terms of, uh, you know, whether I need to adapt it, whether, you know, we, we negotiate on some kind of investment in, in terms of technology to adapt this material to their use. Uh, and so informational mindset, economic, there's also technical, right? So, so uh, we have to test and ensure that the material does have, uh, is adaptable to, to the uses. And so I, I would say, you know, those are some of the, the main bars and uh, Marion and, and Tracy might have some other suggestions. So those are the ones that, that, that come to my mind immediately. Yeah, the, the mindset is big. It's, it's funny how many businesses we start talking to and table for you know having a matching workshop and they say well I don't really have any waste because it all gets magically picked up and it goes away right it's gone so if you have a, a clean business um, you think you don't have any waste and so then you have to start probing right well are you do you have any recycling hauling contracts or do you have any bins in the back uh, are you putting stuff in the bins? <laughs> um, are you turning 100% of everything that comes in into product? <laughs> um, so yeah, that, that mindset I think is really important and time too. Like it's funny how often someone can see an opportunity, but the effort to implement that opportunity, it's just, it's never anyone's particular job or, you know, it's, it's just too much time. One of the things that I've been impressed by uh, in studying industrial symbiosis is the raw fact that when it works, industrial symbiosis creates community. Mm -hmm. And people get to know each other in the way that Tracy described. And uh, Westland's made me think of Puerto Rico even more when we uh, found out about two guys in an industrial park and they both drove Mustangs. And they started talking to one another because they like to talk about their Mustangs, of course. And um, pretty soon they got to know each other and they realized that one company had some cardboard and the other company had some uses for it and, and, and on and on it goes. And so to have a technical system, an industrial system, but also a social system that, that belongs within it, it shows that there's a certain amount of social capital that it takes to build these symbioses 
And if you don't have that, that is also a reason for um, for failure or, um, and, and there are many issues, you know, a, a company might move and will, would another company move in that could take exactly the same materials? No, but that's where the creativity part comes and uh, the lawyers too. And um, this is why I think of it as a pretty multifaceted community. Uh, Westland mentioned some of my work. I wanna say that Westland was the first professor ever to do a social network analysis of an industrial cluster and to go around in a nosy fashion and ask them everything about themselves. You know, where did you go to college and where did you go to grad school and where do you go to church and where do you, you know, to see if we could find social connections that um, perhaps were behind these uh, successful symbioses. So um, I just wanted to bring up that one point about community. It's a great point. And I'm curious because that's been a bit of a a theme so far in the conversation is having those opportunities to connect. What, how do you think COVID might change our ability to connect, to spark those types of um, conversations or those types of organic collaboration? Um, do you see that as being a new barrier that will need to be faced um, when trying to create more kernels of industrial symbiosis or uncover them? And I'll, I'll pose this to Tracy first. Well, yay, we're figuring out the virtual hot dog stand. <laughs> so step one. <laughs> but I, I think what, what the, you know, the current situation has, has taught us, and I, I wish we had been able to learn this lesson a different way, that we are not, our regions are not self, as self-sufficient or resilient as we thought. And you know, that became really apparent when you see people panic buying things that we just, we took for granted were just available and, you know, businesses scrambling to rejig supply chains. And what I've seen is that's created more of an interest. Um, and that's part of that mind shift that Weston was talking about in businesses to look locally or regionally, both for different suppliers and for different customers. Um, and it's also made us realize that we can pivot faster than we thought, which I think will be really helpful, right? So you see these distilleries all of a sudden becoming hand sanitizer manufacturers. And, um, you know, here at UBC, we've all of a sudden come up with, uh, you know, using wood fiber waste for biodegradable masks and things like that. So I, th I think it's, it's catalyzed a little bit of a rethink of how you materials and also cause people to look more locally for what resources we have. And let me just add to, to that. I mean, I think the resilience piece is really important. Um, so more recently I've been doing work with the local food system here in Chicago where, where I'm based. And I think that, that COVID really revealed the importance of having local connections um, and having um, relationships, right? So we, so we talked about community, so, so having a community. So I'll give the example of, you know, the, this one um, indoor farm that, that I worked with that is incidentally called Closed Loop Farm. Uh, so, so as you can imagine, uh, they do lots of closed loop stuff. And so we did a waste audit. They, you know, reuse or recycle 99% of their waste. 
Um, but it also turns out that they were the most socially connected, right? They are the ones who had, who talked to all of the other businesses in their network and they, they had a web presence. And so when COVID hit, uh, they suddenly became the, this platform uh, for bringing together everyone's produce and getting that out to consumers across the city. And so I, I think it, it demonstrates the, uh, the importance and, and the resilience of having this local connectivity uh, as, uh, as a business, right? Um, that as Tracy said, you know, um, and we, we often think about our global supply chains being much more efficient in terms of economies of scale, um, getting materials produced at a lower cost um, uh, somewhere else in, in the world and then being shipped to, to where we are. And um, I think, you know, like we, we see that there's, it, there's that trade-off, right? Uh, efficiency and, and resilience. And so, so I see that, that COVID highlights the, uh, the importance of uh, the local economy for resilience, like especially for food, right? I mean, uh, more so than, you know, our more industrial materials. Great point. I, I'm curious, are there ever situations where the trade-offs perhaps wouldn't be in favor of industrial symbiosis or, or reusing waste? Are there ever some instances where the synergies just aren't feasible um, due to perhaps the costs involved? I'll ask Marian to speak first to this question. Thanks. Well, um, it's certainly true that some industries uh, make lots of waste and, and a certain kind of what we call process waste that uh, that ensures that they're, they're, they're going to be looking for a place to put that waste, whereas other industries also can be industrial or technical, um, not so much. You know, if you're making uh, chips for uh, computers or something, uh, by the time your facility gets it, you know, there isn't so much waste there. And so that might not be a natural. And I think this is an important uh, issue to explore. Uh, but the other thing is there has to be a certain amount of um, uh, economic logic to it. And it, it has to be a certain amount of technology that's involved with it. And so of course, these, uh, these are things, but the thing you need the most is lots of waste. And so <laughs> that's what makes a company good to have to, be, to want to be in an industrial symbiosis. The other thing that's sometimes missed is that people get very concerned about prices. Prices are super important for companies, um, but there are there's also a whole systems view that we need to look at. So um, think of an example of a gypsum board plant. You know, some a company that makes gypsum boards. They need calcium salt gypsum to make that. Well, we looked at a European system. Uh, where the virgin gypsum came from Spain and it had to be taken all the way to Northern Europe. So not only what, even if the price was a little higher, maybe just a little higher, there were also the transportation costs. There were all the risks that go along with transportation. And so we debate in this field whether there's more or less risk from working with your neighbor or working further away. Um, it seems that, uh, th that we really really should do those calculations in a comprehensive way. We have to count employment benefits, and then how would we ever count those, that social capital benefit, the community benefit? It, uh, we don't usually go that far because it's, uh, it's hard to defend in the academy, 
but um, it's really very much a part of thinking of all these uh, benefits that you want to think about in the whole system. I think Tracy's point about supply chain is also really important. You know, where do you get things from? How reliable are they? All those risks have to be factored in as well. Tracy, Wesley, and anything you wanted to add to that? Let me just add that um, in industrial ecology, um, we, we also talk about the life cycle um, cost and benefits um, of materials. And sometimes, you know, to convert uh, a byproduct into something that's reusable by some, someone else uh, to recycle it, you might need a lot of energy uh, to, to put into to that material. And so we need to think about the, the full life cycle cost and benefits of, of the, these synergies that might make it less um, less viable from a technical perspective to um, to pursue uh, a symbiotic uh, synergy. Um, I think that the cost piece is, is important. So it's not only about um, you know the cost of converting this material and and having a a steady stream of this material, right? So that might reduce some uncertainty for for firms. Um, but we need to think about the the transaction costs. And, and these are um, important that, that you know, we, we think about the, uh, the material cost, but the cost of doing the, the investigation, finding the, the potential partner or costs that, that add up. Um, I like Marianne's point about, you know, like really taking the, the whole systems view, right? Because uh, um, sometimes when you, you know, maybe just look at the economics, you get one answer. But when you also look at the environmental um, cost and, and benefits and the social cost and, and benefits, right? So um, the LCA field, you know, is, is now um, moving towards life cycle sustainability assessment so that we incorporate the social, the economic and environmental at the same time in order to, to arrive at a decision that touches all three spheres of sustainability. And, and so I think, you know, that kind of broader systems perspective is is important, but I think, you know, if you're a, a small firm, it's hard to see that big picture, right? Now, if Tracy might want to speak about, you know, kind of the role of facilitators in, in, in helping them see that big picture. Yeah, sort of. <laughs> um, I think we, we still see that the, the business case, traditional business case, is the main driver for whether businesses will follow through on an opportunity or not. But what's interesting is that that business case sometimes doesn't have all the information and it's only the business case from one perspective so for you know when we have the NIST program businesses only implemented what made sense to them for the most part there was an economic benefit that they could clearly see we did find that by engaging with research partners we were able to overcome some of the the cost that Westland mentioned, right? If I have to separate something, if I have to clean it up, if the quality, you know, like, is it, you know, what if I substitute a different energy? Does that change the business case? So we, we found that we, you can't just try and do it in, in isolation. And I think it speaks back to the piece of social capital. It's really important to have governments involved and research institutions because there could be really good social benefits, but the businesses aren't gonna pick up the tab but a public agency might 
fill that gap to get those benefits, right? So that ultimately what looks on paper originally to be not feasible becomes becomes feasible. And, and building off that point a little bit, what, what do you see as being the next step that's necessary to get that support? For? With, with government and, and making sure that um, we can really encourage them to help me. Yeah, I think, well, we need more, more research funding for starters, right? I think cracking, you know, cracking these, these important pieces of why do businesses take action and why don't they? There's technical research, you know, why are we not, you know, we're throwing blueberries uh, into the back 40 to quote a local farmer um, here in the Fraser Valley. Why, why aren't we researching high value uses for those nutraceuticals, pharmaceuticals? Um, and we know that facilitators are really important. And so if it's easy to say, well, you pass the hat, each business might pay like one one hundredth of a facilitator's salary, but it, does, it doesn't work that way. So we need support, I think, because the, the benefits of, of facilitated industrial symbiosis are multiple private and public. We need funding for that. Um, and I think I look at all the green recovery plans and there's a lot of focus on capital and infrastructure and a lot of the examples we've all brought forward are just existing businesses doing things better. They didn't have to go out and spend millions of dollars putting in new pipes or anything like that. So shifting our, our focus as to you know where we're spending money. Absolutely. And in regards to the role of facilitators, champions, perhaps Blessing uh, can talk about why that is so important and how we can make sure there are champions and um, facilitators there to push this forward. Yeah, so, so I think that, you know, we see that there, there are a couple of different models um, of uh, industrial symbiosis evolving in, in different parts of the, the world. Uh, the facilitator model that, that Tracy um, has been talking about, right, is really this third party um, that comes in to help uh, do some matchmaking, um, bring people together um, to lower those transaction costs, right? And, and uh, they're providing trust, they're providing expertise um, to help build that, that network. And so I think um, in, in places where you might not know, you know, who could potentially use your materials, that, that's really valuable. One of the, the other approaches is what we call the anchor tenant um, approach, where there's, you know, one industry um, that is, um, you know, has this mindset, is interested in, in being sustainable and in, in finding uses for its byproduct streams that serves as the connector, right? So, so it realizes that it's in its best interest uh, to have relationships, right? And, and so it might take on some of the, those costs of, you know, finding the, the right partners, um, bringing people in who don't look like they should be part of their, their value chain, right? So um, here in Chicago, we have the, the method soap factory, the people against dirty, right? And when they were building their facility, they wanted to be in the U.S., Rust Belt, um, so very connected in the, the Midwest. And they, they, they knew that they wanted to be sustainable. And so they precisely looked for um, a plastics 
manufacturer who could co-locate within their facility to put their soaps in. Uh, the waste heat that they generate from their facility, they're like, what could we put on top of our building? And so they put a greenhouse <laughs> um, up there, Gotham Greens, which originated in New York and now is kind of like the biggest greenhouse uh, producer in Chicago. And so, you know, the, this anchor uh, tenant can provide some of those facilitation services because they realize it's in their own interest. Right? We also see some business incubators, right, who, who again, and, and this could be a government, it could be uh, a private actor um, that is interested in helping to develop sustainable enterprises and, and serves as uh, a meeting place, a resource center uh, to provide information for startup firms who, who are interested in, in being more sustainable. And so this facilitation is, is really, really important. Uh, I would like to mention um, uh, that one of the uh, champions of industrial symbiosis, Mr. Valdemar Christensen from uh, the, the SNES power plant in Denmark passed away uh, this uh, past month. And uh, he was really one of the, the founders of uh, the industrial symbiosis in, in action. And even, you know, his wife is the one who coined the term industrial symbiosis. And so I just, you know, wanna, wanna give like a, a moment of uh, silence and acknowledgement to the, the amazing role that, that people, individuals make in uh, bringing others along with this change of mindset uh, to make industrial symbiosis happen. You know, we've been talking about the ways that uh, we can conduct industrial symbiosis or it gets conducted sometimes in, uh, in a self-organized fashion. So we don't always know that it's going on until, you know, a, a troop comes along from some college or university and starts finding out, uh, doing all this material flow analysis and checking it out. But I wanted to mention that um, you know, the industrial heart of the world is really in Asia today. And uh, we haven't uh, talked too much or perhaps at all about what happens in China and Japan. Uh, I would say in South Korea is very active in industrial symbiosis. Uh, Westland and I have done research in India and found very different results than we found in, in East Asia and, and in the US. And I think it's easy to see that there in those countries, even the governance is different, the, the cultures are different, and we're likely to see industrial symbiosis accomplished in different ways. So um, in some of those countries, there's a lot of involvement from the government, from the central government. There are subsidies and, um, and, and incentives offered uh, in, in many of those countries for symbiosis because it's expensive and, and uh, damaging to bury things in the ground. Um, and so I want to bring in that uh, we do see symbiosis all over the world. Um, and uh, most recently, I see there are a lot of people on the chat from Latin America. Um, that's wonderful, including Ecuador and Peru. Um, so uh, this is uh, very inspiring for us because another thing that I think we need in the field given a number of different cultures and governance systems and so forth, is experimentation, more and more experimentation uh, without any harm to go along with it. Now that's impossible, but uh, 
it's very interesting how much we learn when we do these kinds of uh, experiments in place. You know, visit somewhere where there, no one ever said there was industrial symbiosis. No one ever heard the term industrial symbiosis, and yet there they are doing it every day because of economic of, uh, necessity or economic values is created. So uh, this is one of those, once again, I think we've said public and private pulling and, and cooperating, but pulling sometimes. And uh, this is another one of the dynamics that we, that we see in industrial symbiosis. Sadly, we are coming to the end of my time to ask uh, questions. Um, I have been uh, really, of course, enjoying this conversation, but want to make sure that we do have some time for audience questions. So I'll end my questions with this last one, um, which is actually building off the point that you were just talking about with getting people to be more open to exploration. I know in, in your work, um, Marion, you also talk about, again, that mindset of resource-based versus waste-based thinking. So perhaps we can start with you, but would love to hear from all the panelists. What do you really think is that mindset shift or behavior change that's really needed for people to start um, opening their eyes to industrial symbiosis, um, symbiosis, excuse me, on a global scale? Well, it's very interesting. Uh, I see in the chat, uh, and Wesley um, mentioned BG Kurup, who's been a real uh, strength in Australia for, in, for industrial symbiosis. And um, what that reminds me of is, um, uh, and, and actually I saw this in the chat, so I'm already jumping ahead uh, to say that, that Fiji really reinforced in the chat the importance of community, the importance of networks. And um, I think the people who have been in Quinana, the, the, the place where we've studied, and uh, she has led is hugely industrial. Someone else asked about large facilities versus small facilities. When we look at these, the Chinese examples, the Japanese examples, the Australian examples, they're very large programs with very large industries. And BG is saying that the community part is more important than ever. So I think that that mindset maybe is, is uh, something that you can't order up. You can't command it as a government. Uh, to make it really work, you have to recognize that. Um, as uh, I remember an article from South Korea that said, well, we need something top down because we need to get started and we need to help businesses uh, find the, the resources to start these things. But we also need to be bottom up and make sure that people know each other and meet each other um, through facilitation and other means and, and so that that commitment can also be made. Wonderful, thank you. I think Marion captured a lot of it. Um, yeah, I, th I think that not only do we need to break out of our sectors, because we know that at about half, at least half of symbiosis opportunities that we see get implemented, at least in the, the programs I've looked at, are across sectors that didn't have, wouldn't normally be in a supply chain before that. So, you know, we have, we have block parties in our neighborhoods, but we often have clusters of businesses and there's no block party equivalent. So if there is no regional program, then probably the best thing you can do as a business is get to know your neighbors, even if they have, even if it seems like they have nothing to do with your business, because it's really surprising where those connections um, can be made. 
And I guess to follow on Westland, everybody should think like method. <laughs> Um, so I'll just add because I, I saw um, a, a question or comment in the chat um, about uh, large businesses, right? So, so we also see internal uh, symbiosis. And if you, you are, uh, you know, a large company with diverse uh, product lines, uh, it is possible to look just within the, those lines for opportunities for, for finding these synergies, right? So you can start inside um, and, and then look, look outside, right? And, and I think that is a way to, um, uh, to build some momentum and interest, right? So if we um, figure out how to reduce our, our waste as much as possible internally, uh, find some ways for building synergies across different lines within the business, then that mindset you know, begins to, to change and then it might be easier uh, to start looking outside uh, for building those relationships too. Wonderful. Thank you all so much. All right, on to the audience questions. And this one's from Christian Isquerdo. He said, I would like to know if you have some experiences related to the use of waste. One of the problems in industrial symbiosis is that waste is, of course, waste. So production and quality of this waste is not always constant. Could this be a problem for the buyer? Um, perhaps could you speak to some experiences to solve these kinds of issues? Um, let me take that on. Um, so I think one of, of the challenges um, is definitely quantity, quality, quantity, consistency of a material stream in order to develop uh, a good synergy. And this is part of the, the technical analysis um, that needs to be done uh, in order to determine if uh, a synergy will happen. Right. If the, the quality that, that I'm producing is, is good enough at uh, required uh, quantity that, that you need it. And so uh, from a, a technical standpoint, the, the quality of the waste, the quantity of the waste might be a restriction in forming uh, a synergy. But I think that there are many examples of different types of, of waste streams. So a lot of um, heavy industrial uh, non-hazardous waste um, are some of the perfect candidates for industrial symbiosis because of the quantity and consistency of those materials. I think, you know, the, the smaller material streams um, are harder to find uses for, right? And, and that's where you might need some help uh, to figure out what has someone done with this material before? And I'm going to relate that to one of the questions that, that I saw in the chat, right? So there are some platforms uh, such as the one that, that NIST uses uh, to, that builds on pre-existing cases, success stories from, uh, from the experience in the UK, in Canada, in Mexico, in different parts of the world that uh, they're able to say, oh, this type of material has been used in this application, in this context, so we can try uh, this, this type uh, of synergy in, in this place. So I think there are lots of examples out there. Thank you so much, uh, 
to our incredible panelists for taking this time out of your very busy lives to share all of your expertise and insights with us. Um, there has been a really lively and engaging chat going on. Thank you so much to our audience for taking the time to learn about this really important topic. And hopefully this has been an opportunity and a platform where you've been able to potentially create new connections or spark new ideas that you can step away from and spark some positive change and perhaps find some kernels of industrial symbiosis in your own backyard. Thank you for joining us. For more education, enlightenment, and enchantment, head to tealeaves.com.